Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 617. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, today the main fiction is Retrieval Attempt by Matt Hornsby. And we're going to get into that straight away. But at the end of the the end of the show, no, I'm not going to spoil it or anything like that, but at the end of the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about the new Star Wars, the Mandalorian. I'm going to talk a little bit. <laughs> There's no spoilers or anything like that, so don't worry about that. It's just my thoughts compared to what I've just started to watch is The Watchmen, that, the TV series. So, and I've just started to watch that, but I'll give you, you know, I'll just stick around for a little kind of... A little, maybe a little grumble. So the main fiction, like I say, is Matt Hornsby's retrieval attempt. It's an original to Starship Sofa. Matt Hornsby lives in Ireland and works in public policy. After previous stints as a scrap metal dealer and an English teacher in Japan, his other published work can be found in Metamorphosis and Electric Spec. And you can follow him at Twitter. It's, and there's a little link there as well. Now, this story is narrated by Mark Killifoyle. Mark, the encaffeinated one, Killifoyle, is a reader, writer, gamer, podcaster, narrator, radio program director. He produces a show on gaming, Head in the Game, and helps run 
and produce shows on alternate radio, plays and runs role-playing games online, Legends of the Drowned Isles and so many levels and elsewhere, and podcast daily, wandering out loud on life, philosophy, gaming and random distractions in the sound form. He's currently working hard on finishing his first audio drama, first novel and second podcasted novella, all in the span of one year. And there's a link there to Mark's site as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Retrieval Attempt by Matthew Hornsby. If the boys found two stiffs all day, it was already a good batch. Finding three, whether they've been having to brave the underdeck, was a miracle. Azo counted them all there in solid, flesh padded metal sagging on the concrete. He was fast, and grabbed the first stiff, maybe because he looked like him, a long, dark fellow with black hair and a jutting jaw. He knew he'd got a good one by the way Pelican and old Hari yelled at him. "'That your brother, Adjo?' shouted Pelican, picking up the second stiff, an old lady, by the ankles. Azure groped his guy's skull for plastic and wire. The brainware ports were empty, of course— Sivsec would rip external modules off a citizen before his eyes stopped twitching. The magnets in Ajo's fingers hummed over the stiff's cheeks and brows. Plenty of face wear. He revved his hand drill and started boring into meat and bone. Old Hari had taken the third stiff, a short, bald fellow. He flipped the man over and spat a thick Malay curse. Half of his head was missing, a perfect circle of nothing between the bald guy's eye and ear. Pelican's laugh started up, a jerky snort like someone revving a grinder. <laughs> Too bad, Uncle Harry, he said between convulsions. Baldi's headgear's going to be leaked out all over the city by now. You see that, Ajo? Ajo grunted again. No worries, brother, said Harry. This guy's skin is loaded. Got heavy subdermals, he hacked at an arm. The little flaying knife bounced off the flesh with a clang, almost escaping his hand. His eyes flickered between Pelican and Ajo. Hey, Ajo, lend me your drill. This stuff's got to be worth something big. Subdermal armor's selling hot right now. Ajo put two hands on his drill. He needed to be careful. Hari was a smart old dog. No brainware. Wouldn't be a meat scrapper if he could afford it. He just had something natural. "'sharp eyes like a monkey-god statue. "'Azure wasn't like that. "'Everyone had always said he had a skull full of warm milk. "'But he was big, so they said it when he had his hands full. "'I'm not sharing,' Azure said. "'Pelican was still slicing away with one hand on the lady's back and neck, "'fingers dark and slippery with blood. "'Hari swatted the air with his hand. "'Damn it, Azure, give me that drill!' Either that, or we might as well swap stiffs. It'll take me hours to slice through this bastard's armor. Hajo wasn't green enough to fall for that one. He had worked hard for that drill. Okay, said Hajo. You give me the stiff, I use the drill. Hari scowled. Don't worry, he said. I should never have mentioned it. No, Hajo was moving over now. He felt the muscles in his arms flex. "'sweat running through valleys of skin in the afternoon heat. "'He was going to turn Harry's little trick back on him. "'Then he'd rip those subdermals out, 
Get a big pay packet and invite Nanda to eat ice cream and watch her fight in the snake pit. This time, she would say yes. Give me the stiff, Ajo said. Hari threw his hands up. Okay, big man, no fight. Let's swap. The body flopped into Ajo's hands. Iwanaga's skull cracked as her vision phased, Imod's tuning to reveal the dark tunnels around her. Yoshioka and Kimura had gone down in the firefight, but at least she still had Igawa. Situation report, Sergeant, she called. There was no response. She stopped and turned. Igawa had disappeared. She tried comms. The line was empty. She wavered a second, then turned and kept moving. The priority was extraction. Igawa would have done the same. They had briefed her back in the command tower at Misawa. Insert via minisub. Infiltrate city's underdeck. Extract with the target asset. And our intelligence officer gave her the strategic background. Tokyo was planning a move on Ocean City. If half of the rumors of dark tech coming out of the modding cabals was true, the city needed to be secured before things boiled to a head with the Austral Alliance. A high-value asset would help the bureaucrats in the foreign ministry make their minds up. Tokyo had underestimated the Hamadriad cabal. Iwanaga had secured the asset easily enough, but then things had gone downhill, heavily armed gang members flooding out of the crevices in the undercity like earwigs from a nest. Her squad had made the enemy pay. She would have expected nothing less. But there was no winning a battle like that, outgunned and outnumbered in hostile terrain. Still, she had the asset. She ran a hand over it in her combat webbing, hard and round. The mission was not yet a failure. A dull rattle rang down the tunnel. Iwanaga snapped ninety degrees, weapon trained at the shadows. They were under her, she realized, cutting off her route to the extraction point. Time for a change of approach. She would need to get out topside. In the Central de Modificaciones, everything was noise and heat. Everything was for sale. Vendors shouted advertisements for posture amps, enlightenment glasses, aphrodisimulators, bionic replacements for every bone, muscle, and organ in the human body, many of them illegal everywhere on earth except Ocean City. From the mod district of the core extended a maze of pure merchandise, fruit, sweltering slabs of vat protein, great trees of rubber shoes, and a jungle's worth of screaming gene-whipped creatures in bamboo cages. Ajo's mouth flooded with saliva as he walked through the food market. Fat popped from lamb skewers, sambal and randang simmering in vats, sauces thick with cloned meat. But he could have been walking through the bio-waste tanks for all he cared. His mind was on something else. Someone else. Nanda's small Mexican body was framed in flashes by the glowing sign. Singh's Body Rigging Modificaciones Corporale de Singh Shingu Jintai Kaizo Her eyes softened in recognition as the three scrappers approached. She ran ivory and gold modded fingers through the blonde streaks in her hair, like a red sunset over a calm dark ocean, a pocket full of pay tokens, something clean and warm and perfect unlike everything else in Ocean City. 
Harry elbowed him in the ribs as they approached. Hey, Ajo, Nando looks nice today, huh? And a body rigger's girl makes good business sense. But you thought of that already with that brain of yours. Ajo ignored the old man's mocking grin and held his hull close to his chest. Mr. Singh ran through the scrapper's bloody basket, lifting each muscle cable and skin jack out for inspection with long, rubber-gloved fingers. The auto lenses perched on her ancient nose whirred as they focused and refocused. She muttered her way through Harry's load in Punjabi, Hindi, and Ocean City Creole, tutting as she wiped away globules of wet red tissue. "'Okay,' she said. "'Good load. Five hundred. She slid the basket along her workbench and nodded to Nanda, who fished out a handful of pay tokens. Harry received them with palms turned up and joined, muttering words of gratitude in the direction of his feet. "'Next one!' Ajo stepped forward and held out his basket. The fat man's armor plates were neatly lined up at the top, like books in a library. Singh squinted at him, spat into the drain, and began to root through his hall. She barely looked at the armor plates, shuffling them away to reach a pile of sensory amps underneath. The fat stiff's ocular implant meant a disapproving sigh. The eight tiny fingertip modules lasted two seconds before she tossed them back into the basket with a curl of her lip. Damaged! Too damaged! Nothing else? Ajo pressed his hands together in supplication, tilting his head forward. What about the armor, mistress? He grabbed a panel of the subdermal plating. She shook her head. Not armor. Supports for rotted bone. Slow steel. Only good for melting. One hundred. Pelican and Hari were snorting with laughter as he let the dismal hall fall into his hands. Not enough for a Class Three meal. Not enough for a transport ticket home. You got to get smarter, Ajo, Nanda said. Her pitying smile felt like a king cobra's teeth on his neck. Iwanaga was surrounded. They had attacked twice in twenty minutes, shapes slinking out of the gloom, snub-nosed combat guns barking slugs at her down the tunnels. She hugged cover, cold, wet steel biting through her overalls. Another burst of fire lit up the dark, sending bullets pinging off the tunnel walls, but their angle was no good. She kept low, waiting. One of her assailants stepped out onto the concourse, his boots hammering the grating. Iwanaga waited three seconds, then punctured the silence with a clean shot into his torso. He went down, but she kept her eyes up. Another popped up, the electric glow of a command suite on his shoulder giving him away. She sent two rounds into the darkness before he had time to fire. Then there was quiet. Had they only sent two this time? A burst of light, noise, and pain hit Iwanaga. Her shoulder exploded. It was her combat reflexes, drilled over decades, that saved her. She pinpointed the muzzle flash, braced her weapon as well as she could with her failing arm, dropped to one knee, and returned fire. The thud of metal into flesh echoed down the corridor. After two seconds of silence, she let herself sink to the floor. The command suite lights had been a decoy. She had been a fool to fall for it, and she deserved the wound she'd taken. Painkillers and muscle stims are flooding into her arm. It would be of reduced value to her now. The real problem was right in front of her eyes. Flickering retinal readouts showed that her heads-up display was about to die. 
It had already been running on emergency power, with the mission extended four times beyond its planned duration. Without the tactical advantage it gave her, chances of completing the mission were close to zero. That was unless she played her last card. Her fingers gripped the cold metal of the asset. If it didn't get back to Japan, why not explore its capabilities? She reached around the back of her skull. Nails digging into her scalp, she unplugged the auxiliary wires to her neurokit. Once it was decoupled, she clamped her fingers around the kit and detached it fully. Her heads-up display winked out. The biometric alarms monitoring her injury stopped ringing. The new device slipped in easily. Almost too easily. For a moment there was pain and whiteness. Then she opened her eyes to a different world. Ajo's body groaned. A dull ache rose from his legs, turning into a rasping pang at his empty stomach. He had been stupid again. Only an idiot would try to walk across the top city during a typhoon morning. But he had no money, so he had no choice. He'd hauled himself into the room through a broken window when the megastorm blew up. It was small and empty. His optical adjuster had tuned his eyesight to the darkness now, and he looked around. Even in here, the sound of the weather shook his bones, and he felt the city rock on its foundations. His lips moved in exhortations to God, muscle memory inherited from his parents back on Java. As the corners of the room began to sharpen, he noticed a strange, bulky shape. Someone was sleeping there. No, not sleeping. Azu had been a scrapper long enough to know the shape of a stiff. He had learned his lesson from trying to slice open corpses who turned out to only be recovering from a night of red-tie liquor. This one was gone. The angle of her limbs and the aperture of her eyelids made that clear. She was short, dressed in strange gear, head still tied back in a bun. Ajo held her jaw between his thumb and index finger. Tiny inlays around her eyes marked the interface points of a high-grade eye rig. She was carrying some serious work. Liquid lapped at his toes. A pool of blood. The woman's dark overalls were flared up in little eruptions where her torso and abdomen had been punctured. This felt bad. Ajo felt a sudden desire to get out of the room. He noticed the smell of cordite and fire hanging in the air. Gang stuff, too close to the top of the food chain. His place was at the depths, filtering the residue that got missed in the feeding frenzy like some slow, stupid fish, cold-blooded and wide-mouthed. But if something swam into his mouth, shouldn't he eat it? He began to strip her overalls. Her body was taut, still warm, muscles straining at the skin. Flaying knife gripped between his teeth, he ran his hands across her, kneading them into her arms, shoulders, forehead, and hips. The magnets in his fingers were motionless. Ajo would have cursed if he hadn't had eight inches of sharp steel between his teeth. He tried again. Someone with high-tech headgear like that should have been modded all over. His hand stopped over a rigid bump on her skull. His finger mags hummed. Now his breath was in the front of his mouth, and his blood was hot. 
He tried to stop his hand shaking as he nestled the fingers under the woman's collar and hair and curled them around a strange, round piece of metal. The mod didn't look like anything he'd ever seen. An eyeball-sized node plugged into a neat black skull socket. That was standard, high spec. But this one was beautiful. Ornate Chinese calligraphy danced across it, and the metal shone golden bright, even under a layer of ichor. He put one finger on it, then two, then three, and eventually grasped it whole. It was warm to the touch. His other hand didn't even make it to his drill. The mod was coming loose as he twisted, unscrewing neatly and falling into his palm. Something like that could pay out big, and he would have no sniveling pelican or wily old Hari to share it with. But his other hand was rubbing his own socket now, the plastic terminal almost overgrown with hair. It still worked. Iwanaga had spent years honing her reflexes and decision capability through painful exercise. This new tech, within minutes, had transformed her. It ran a thousand new wires through the passageways of her brain. Navigation was easy. Rapid analysis of environmental and architectural information cross-referenced against existing knowledge allowed her to build an internal map of the city. Moisture levels, construction materials, contextual data gleaned from workers' graffiti. She advanced rapidly through the tunnels, the mod even seeming to improve her physical coordination, lending every movement a dancer's precision. Amplified hearing and new levels of intuition enabled her to pinpoint the location of her pursuers and avoid them. As she proceeded upward through the warrens of the Undercity, she began to detect small spears of daylight, refracted through work shafts and hollowed-out hab columns. She was almost topside. Once she was up, it would be an easy job. Proceed to the city's terminal, acquire transportation, extract, eliminate or bypass all resistance. As soon as she began to think about it, the mod was assisting her, strategies and plans of attack suggesting themselves. The colonel was going to be very happy with this asset. The underdeck would have smelt bad anyway, but the darkness made it smell worse. A reeking, half-dead cocktail of sewage, seawater, and industrial discharge. Pelican was coughing. What are we doing down here? My lung rig's choked up. Relax, Harry said. There's good stuff in the city guts. Pelican snarled. Hey, Azjo, he said, lowering his breath. How did you hear about this score? Heard those Filipino boys stalking in the snake pit. Said some gunslingers got lost in the underdeck with all their mods on them. The others accepted this. Ajo had known they would. It had taken him a microsecond to craft a convincing lie. It was a strange feeling, a different one from telling the truth. But he felt different. He had dreamed strange dreams last night. He had been rustling in a bright hall, soft blue mats beneath his feet. He had walked through a forest of chirping cicadas and twittering birds. He had been lying on a futon, a seething fan chopping the air above him. And when he had woken up, none of it went away. Even now, those images of things he had never seen were fresh in his mind. Hari and Pelican were different, too. Brother, 
they had always called him, drinking with him, laughing with him, even if they had played some tricks on him. Now he read the truth in the tone of their voices, their body language, their winks and grins. He was a tool to them, a dumb animal that could lead them to a catch, then be hoodwinked out of it. He ran his hand over the back of his head. He'd worn his hair down to cover the module. It sat there neatly, quietly, setting his mind aflame. It didn't matter that it gave him strange dreams. Omni-eyes gave you headaches. Subdermals made you sweat too much. Every good mod had a side effect. "'Where next, little brother?' said Hari. "'Down. Keep going down.' The truth was that Ajo didn't know where they were going, but he had the feeling that he had been here before. He remembered the beam of a shoulder-mounted searchlight scanning the dark tunnel walls, a compact rifle tucked under his shoulder. He remembered pain. They found it in a wide, round room, only meters from where the city's foundation plunged into the ocean. The waves of the Pacific rumbled beneath the floor. Beautiful, said Harry, thumping Ajo on the back. You did beautifully, brother. Pelican's mouth hung open. Five stiffs lay scattered around the room like morsels across a dinner plate, little rivers of blood encrusted between them. They were modded up. That was clear, high-grade tough guys. Even in the dark, Ajo could see the aggressor gauntlets grafted under their arms, heads bulging with neural support hardware, auxiliary micro-limbs jutting from torsos. "'We're going to be rich, Ajo, my brother,' said Pelican, batting playfully at his head. He winked at Hari again. Ajo had seen him do that a thousand times, but now he understood what it meant. Pelican and Ajo held the old blue plastic sheet with the hall laid across it, stepping slowly and deliberately to stop anything slipping. The storm had kicked up again and they rocked the sheet with the rhythm of the city. A little waterfall of blood trickled off with every swing. "'Gonna be rich,' Pelican kept repeating. He didn't know exactly how they would do it, but Ajo knew now that they would try and rob him. He couldn't let that happen. Not this time. They were back at the utility shaft, at the crossing between the underdeck and the city. "'We gotta cross back over quick,' said Hurry. Ocean's coming up. The crossing had been tough in the calm conditions. Now it would be like balancing on the back of a tiger. Scrappers were bred nimble, but Hurry and Pelican looked rattled. Ajo caught their eyes flickering between one another, and he knew what he would have to do. Okay, Ajo, said Pelican. You go across, then we bring the loot. Ajo's analysis was already complete. He had evaluated the chances of success. They were good. It was almost as if he didn't have to think about it, like it was suggested to him by something else. He waited three seconds, then leaned down, scooped up the tarpaulin, and slung it onto his back. Ahmad spilled from it onto the floor, and Hari dived after it. Pelican stood between Ajo and the walkway, shock and confusion in his face. Ajo pushed him out of the way, and with the sack in one hand— "'jumped up onto the pipework that spanned the shaft. "'Ajo, come back, you dog!' "'Ajo said nothing. "'His entire mental architecture focused on the task of getting across the gap. 
For a boy raised in the Centrale, he had always been clumsy, no good at football or handball, limbs heavy and long. Now he understood how to move. He felt the connection between his mind and the tips of his fingers. He was aware of every moment of the weight of his body, adjusting its angle, binding his center of mass to the pipes and the walls. Halfway across, he felt the tremors of Hari and Pelican coming after him. He felt pity as he watched them. They grasped blindly at useless holds, expending all their energy on migratory moves, teeth clenched in silent concentration. He felt disgust at the idea that he had once been like that. For the person he had been before didn't feel like it had been him at all. He took the drill from his belt, wiped it clean of the stiff's blood and viscera, and drove it into the bindings that supported the crossing, beginning to loosen the bolts. Harry and Pelican didn't notice until the first few brackets came loose and the pipework shuddered half a meter to the left. They watched him with wide eyes, calling his name with exhortations and curses, holding themselves desperately in place. Something about the way they looked at him made him speed up the work. He knew when it was loose enough, and then all it took was a hefty kick at the end of the walkway, and the whole structure broke free and plunged down toward the ocean. The two scrappers followed it down, arms flailing in the void. He watched until they disappeared beneath the waves. Maybe some former version of him would have felt regret or sadness at seeing them go that way. But he had new priorities now, and he couldn't afford any unnecessary risks. Another ladder, this one leading up to the deck itself, rainwater slicking its upper rungs, Iwanaga prepped her gear. As she began to climb, something stopped her, a suggestion of caution, of elevated risk. But she hadn't thought it. She had heard it in her own voice, curt, military, the touch of a Kyushu accent, floating up from the base of her skull. The mod was doing something to her mind, something strange. For the first time, she felt the sudden urge to rip the device out of its socket. But it was too late for that. The mission came first. She pulled herself through the mouth of the ladder shaft. Something clicked and whirred below the range of normal human hearing. In the half-second sweep of her eyes across the room, a small sphere of space stood distinct from the gray metal weave of the city. Iwanaga had always been quick, and the mod made her quicker— before she was conscious of it, her body had begun to twist and throw itself backward. But her weight was forward, trapping her in the event zone for a moment too long. The murder box leapt into the air on hydraulic springs and fired its charges, turning everything to light and smoke. She felt the cold, hard ridges of the decking on her back. The light and smoke sunk into darkness. One hand seemed to be working— she dragged it onto her chest. There was only torn flesh, burnt fabric, and pain. Images burst into her eyes as she died. The flop and slap of bodies onto the tatami at judo sessions in the bodai. The forests around Mount Osusu in summer. Pine-scented air thick with insects. Then she was a child on her futon, laying as still as a stone to escape the heat. Looking up at the ceiling fan and willing it to go faster. 
She felt something strange as she watched it, like her mind was leaving her body, dragging all her personality and memories out of her head. She finally understood the implications of the technology. The bureaucrats in Tokyo wouldn't believe it, she thought, imagining their reactions. Then the fan grew slower, drawing ever lazier circles in the air, until it finally rattled and stopped. Ajo checked on the rigor's process. He wished he hadn't. Putting in a quick-deploy combat module required both the radius and the ulna to be smashed, and a good amount of muscle tissue removed. It would be replaced by the unit when it went in, but right now his elbow tailed off into an impressionistic explosion of bone shards and flesh. When he had it, he would be better, ready for his mission. He had a clearer sense now of where to go. The images flooded his mind. He could see himself on the road. Pine needles crunching underfoot, cicadas rattling in the summer sun. For a moment the sun grew brighter, and the chirping insects grew louder, blinding and deafening him. He reached a hand up to the back of his head, running it over the mod. Something wasn't right. His fingers clenched across it, tensing, but he couldn't do that yet. Better to be smart and a little crazy than stupid. "'I'm getting another finger done,' said Nanda. Once I've saved up a bit, she flexed her left hand in front of his face, flexing her ivory thumb and golden index finger. You should let me help you out, said Ajo. She narrowed her eyes. How did you get the money? she asked. Got lucky in the snake pit, he said. Did you cheat? Ajo chuckled. He realized that he was scanning her face constantly, calculating her emotional responsiveness. You know I'm honest, Nanda. She smiled at him her eyes flickering to the ground. He wanted to say something else, but his breath caught in his mouth as he felt a dull thud at his elbow. The rigor was installing the module. "'Something about you is different,' she said. "'I guess I'm just feeling lucky,' he said. "'I must never have seen you get lucky before.' He wondered if she understood what was happening." Brain mods weren't supposed to be powerful enough to change someone's personality. Maybe this one wasn't normal. "'What do you dream about?' he asked. It seemed like the right direction to go in. She frowned. "'What kind of question is that?' "'I want to know. Normal stuff? Like I'm flying or falling down?' "'You dream of flying?' he asked. "'Yeah. Or of walking on land?' "'On real land. "'I was born on Ocean City, never left. "'My folks both got kicked out of Mexico, Modheads, before I was born. "'I never saw forests or trees or river, just metal and seawater. "'You were born on the continent, right?' "'Jakarta, as you tried to recall his young years in the terrestrial metropolis, "'there was nothing there now. "'The same images came to him again.' A forest, sometimes hot and sometimes cold. The tower. There must have been so much space, she said. He shrugged. Not really. Too many people. Whoever humans get together somewhere, they all pile on top of one another like rats in a cage. I guess it's harder to make a living from the world than making a living from other people. 
We're all parasites, feeding off each other's waste and death. Nanda nodded blankly. She'd probably never heard him use a long word before. I've got a dream for real, she said, of going to a place where there's nobody, somewhere on an island or a mountain. He smiled and took her ivory inlaid finger in his hand. I could take you there, she smiled back. Meet me at the terminal tonight, he said. Years of longing and waiting culminated in this moment. Nanda nodded. But all that desire seemed distant now, buried under new things. His hand touched the mod again, but quickly came away. He still needed it. Ajo stalked through the centrale. It was the middle of the night, but the marketplace never turned off. Hawkers shouted from stalls and birds squawked in cages. He scanned both ways at each crossroad. The path was clear. Pick up Nanda, reach the terminal, get a ticket to the Northeast Asian hub, departing as soon as possible. Move quickly, unnoticed. When he arrived at the hub, he would head for the base. The tower silhouetted against the sky between mountains. They would know him there. He stopped walking for a moment to get his head straight. But he didn't stop, not completely. His feet dragged themselves clumsily away from him, ignoring his commands. His brain burned, and his skin froze. The images ran through his head uninterrupted. The tower, the soldier, bitter fighting in dark tunnels. He tried to focus, clear his mind. There was nothing he could do now— except keep moving forward towards his goal. He took off walking again at a pace that surprised him. Panic rose in Ajo's gut, sweat running down his face. He was losing control of his body. He tried to jam his heels into the ground. It was as if a chain was dragging him down a corridor. He could not stop. Even as he frantically tried to resist his own body, he heard a voice talking to him in his head, his own voice, mixed with a woman's. Don't try to stop it. Think about what we could do together. What good was being smart if you couldn't think your own thoughts? The mod had got inside him, and he needed it out. He willed all his energy into his hands. Like the foreleg of a dying spider, his arm rose jerkily into the air and then bent back toward his head. Whoever else was in there was pushing back. It was no good. His hand wouldn't make contact, his fingers quivering over the mod, twisting and wrenching his shoulder. His breath rattled in his lungs. All he could do was keep going. Get to the tower. That was all that mattered. His memories had almost disappeared, receding into some hidden corner of his brain. Except one thing. Nanda. He was heading toward her. She would set him free. Pain hit Ajo cleanly as he opened his eyes. The room around him swam into slow resolution. Crates of wrapped wiring, scraps of fabric, an odd-looking statuette of a woman in white. Uncategorizable, random, no connections revealed or implied. Pain turned to confusion, 
a gut fear swelling from his bowels. Nothing made sense. He was immobilized, strapped into a hard steel chair like a slaughterman's steer. He rotated his head, tried to flex his fingers. He felt the dull vibration of the cheap magnetic detectors. His thoughts burned themselves out as he closed his eyes. It was gone. Someone had taken the mod, and he was left with his analog brain, slow and simian. His body was his again, but he did not know what he was supposed to do with it. He heard a familiar, lilting voice. We lost a lot of people looking for this. Funny that you of all people should find it. They always said, the other scrappers, that you were the best smelling out a stiff. Azure tried to process this. He knew the voice, but before it had been soft and girlish. Now it carried the threat of secret knowledge. You took it out, he said. How did you know? Nanda came into full view now. Even when Azure was sat down, her eyes were barely above his. She leaned forward bringing her face close to his, and with a single golden finger pulled back her eyelid to reveal a coiled serpent etched in black onto the ivory of her sclera. The Hamadriad. Poor Azio. You never should have messed with that kind of tech. I could tell something was up when you showed up at the shop, talking about dreams and parasites, with all those tokens in your pocket. Azure stopped trying to make sense of it. His head burned. It was like some slithering creature had slipped and burst from her skin and left the old Nanda behind. All he had wanted was for her to think something of him, to see him as anything other than a dumb idiot. Maybe that had changed. But she had changed with it. He could smell her. A floral note cloaked under machine oil and smoke. There was something in her. A bird's lightness in her movement and a fearful animal anger in her eyes. He couldn't stop himself still wanting her, wanting to help her. Don't put it in, he said. She's in there. You don't feel her at first, but she's strong. And soon she makes your thoughts hers. She wipes you out. Nanda looked at him curiously. Ajo realized that she had the mod in her palm, holding the little ball delicately between two metal fingers. You were right, you know. Ocean City is not a place for a long life. As soon as you have something, they start to gather. Sharks, the seagulls, the bottom feeders. Then they suck it out of you and eat you up, too, for good measure. Something caught the light in the room, sending silver shafts into Ajo's eyes. Nanda was now twirling a long blade in her bejeweled hand. He realized it was his, his old flaying knife, still sharp and shining. Azure pulled his breath into his body and waited for her to sink the cold metal into him. It wouldn't be so bad. There wasn't much left for him. He was stuck back in his own head with his own dull-tempered thoughts. She leaned close. It's like I told you. You got to get smart, or you stay at the bottom. Still holding the knife, she raised the mod to her head and gently screwed it into her brainware socket. 
Her eyelids fluttered, and her pupils dilated. She stepped back, slowly. I think there is a bit of you left in here as well, Ajo, Nanda said. She walked backward, gathering pace, then turned and left the room. For hours Ajo sat still in his bonds. He didn't know what to do except wait, filled with fear. Nanda did not return. The light outside shifted from yellow to a sickly red. Ajo's stomach began to throb insistently. Even if his mind could do nothing, his body made him move. The synth-cord rope was strong and tight, but the more Ajo's belly insisted, the stronger he became, and eventually his big body couldn't be held in, muscles bulging and tearing through the fibers. His feet surprised him with how well they carried him across the room and out. Color, heat, and smell blossomed and opened into broad shafts. Flickering lights in neon azure and ocean cut into the darkness of the room. Outside the slaps of dominoes on tabletops, accompanied by the shouts of game players in Spanish, Khmer, Cabuano, and Russian. Two fat rhinoceros beetles tumbling over each other in a cage in the corner, locking barbed limbs into carapaces. Azure was hungry. He needed tokens to eat. And for tokens, he needed to sell scrap. Slowly his feet began to carry him along the paths that were carved into his memory, down toward the lower city, the sewers and tunnels where the dead gathered, stiffs crumpled in corners and floating in wastewater sinks. He could smell them already, organic and warm. He would pull the metal from their bodies, and then he could eat. And he would keep doing it, until he, one day, lay bent and broken in the city's bowels, ready for some hungry creature to dig the metal parts out of his own dark flesh and haul them heavily back up into the light. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And there we go. Oh, an original Starship Sova. Matt, thank you so much indeed. And Mark. Oh, huge thank you, gentlemen. Huge thank you. 
So that is the end of, of the show. But like I say, I just want to kind of give, give you my couple of thoughts on a couple of things. As I've mentioned, it's not over here. So by hella high water, I had to kind of watch the new Mandalorian. And, well, I've just had to go somewhere else and <laughs> watch it. And I think I'll probably sign up to the Disney thing when it comes in March anyways. But I'm just... I'm, and it's it's only... What's wrong with it, Tony? Well, there's nothing actually wrong with it. It's just not, it's not long enough, long enough each episode. It's just very linear. You know, it's, there's no depth. There's no, everything's kind of laid out. Um, unless there's something coming in, in the future ones, but I think we're on the kind of number, show number six there now. And it's just like story plot A, B, C. And that's it. Do you know what I mean? Go do this job, come back, finish. That's it. It's over. And I just want a bit more from it. Do you know what I mean? It's such a. I want a bit more characterization from the whole lot of them. You know, it's just. I seem to be kind of not struggling with it because I, I I love it each and every time it comes out. You know, it's a great world. I just would like a bit of depth to it. You know, it feels like it's like three centimeter. We're only scratching the surface of this. You know, we're, we're viewing. It's and it's there's there's so much more to find out and if it was just you know forty five minutes long an hour long that would be fantastic and like I say I've just started watching the Watchmen I'm only on a, you know episode one and I've noticed they're round about an hour I think and it's just complex do you know what I mean it's just it's it's you don't know what's going on you you're left wondering straight away who are them what are them and you don't get any of that in not not one thing in in the kind of Mandalorian. It's all it's it's. I'm not going to say it's predictable, but it's it's certainly plotted and it's very, you know, there's there's no kind of surprises. And I what I tell you why why this is coming from as well because I watched on YouTube. I think Nerd Writer One it might be, and he was just showing. A different scenario to the, you know, the the passengers film, the science fiction film with Jennifer Lawrence in, and oh, I forget the writer, man, Chris Pratt, where they're on a gen, like a generation ship, but the way Chris Pratt wakes up earlier, and then, you know, I think a year later he wakes up Jennifer Lawrence. That was by Nerd Rider. It was kind of told from a different perspective because it, that one was very linear you know it was plotted out and you knew kind of what was going to happen where if you just took it from a different perspective and really followed it from Jennifer Lawrence if the if the film had started from Jennifer Lawrence waking up and then you find out all the back history it made it it's just a it almost made it like a, a shining Film, you know, it was it was a remarkable thing the way you can just change a few aspects of it, and it was a way. And I just think that's what should happen with the Mandalorian. It's so like that's Daisy shouting in the back. Daisy, what's going on here? She's, I think she's getting burned. We've got the, I've got it. What time is it now? It's seven o'clock in the morning. I've got the the log fire roaring away. Then she's getting too hot next to it. That's what, but she doesn't want to move. <laughs> so you know, it's just. I wanted to be kind of kept wondering, and with the Mandalorian, it's it's not happening. It's just like that's it, you know. Enjoy it, and yes, I'm enjoying it. It's not, you know what I mean. It's not kind of terrible or anything. The the characters are great, that you know what I mean. But I just want a little bit more. It's like watching a kindergarten 
TV series, you know, there's no, like, it's it's not it's not made for adults, or it's not, you know, it's, are we, I want a bit of texture to it, that's it, I want a bit of texture to it, and I'm not getting it, it's just an ABC, that's the story, we're going to go and retrieve the bag of gold, let's say, they get the bag of gold, and next, next episode, we're going to go and break someone out of jail, <laughs> next episode, and there's nothing, there's no... Big story arc, or there might be that the you know the problem I'm saying that without even knowing the thing. So there might be, but it's it ain't doing it for us at the moment. But I'm still enjoying it for what it is, anyways, because it's Star Wars. I don't have anything nasty said against it. Just me, just I'm allowed to do that. Anyway, look after yourself. Take good care. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.